and welcome to Hospice Insights, The Lawn Beyond, where we connect you to what matters in the ever-changing world of hospice and palliative care. Hospice Audit Series, Spring Audit Bloom, Medicaid, UPIX, and MAC ADRs. Today, I'm joined by colleagues Brian Nowicki and Aaron Burns to discuss the recent flurry of audit activity, specifically the reemergence of UPIC Medicaid audits and MAC post-payment ADRs. We'll talk about what these requests look like, what we think they mean, and the strategies for how hospices should respond. Brian, Aaron, glad Hello, to have you with me. So, um, so I love our title, which is Spring Audit Bloom. Um, so, so what's blooming that, but these are like, what is the stinky flower? But no one that's like the, what's that big flower I went and got? The, the corpse? Yeah, the corpse flower. (laughs) This is like the, I don't think people are excited about the blooms that are, are occurring here, but, but, um, it's sort of like the old is new again with these Medicaid UPIC audits because was it three, four years ago? We had a lot of these and some of them are still uh, outstanding in the sense they haven't been settled yet through the appeal process, but they seem to be beginning again. Why don't, why don't you give a little preview of what those are looking like? Yeah, so you're right, Meg. It was maybe three or four years ago uh, Health Integrity, the name of the contractor at the time, who was doing what was then MIC audits, Medicaid Integrity Contractor. They were really sweeping the country. They had projects in different states, Florida, North Carolina, Iowa, I mean, really everywhere across the country. Uh, And those audits, much like Medicare audits, they take years to go through the system. Um, And some of them have concluded. Uh, I think there's a number of them that are still pending after three or four years. Uh, and Health Integrity changed its name to Clarent. Uh, and and since that really, that rash of MIC audits a few years ago, it's been very quiet on the MIC side. You know, maybe once a year we would see a UPIC, which was the combination of the old ZPIC and MIC. Every, maybe once a year we'd see a UPIC do a Medicaid audit, uh, but very rare. And then now in the past uh, just month and a half, in pretty quick succession, there are we're aware of at least three UPIC Medicaid or mixed Medicaid and Medicare audits. So it looks like the Medicaid side of this from a federal level is heating up again. So hospices may have still during the interim have had their state, their particular state Medicaid agency doing audits and investigations. But now we see the feds coming back into it on the Medicaid side through their UPICs doing these kinds of audits. Well, and I think the the challenge with Medicaid um, audits, which, you know, in terms of, you know, our total population, pretty small, right? That's Medicaid for hospice. But I think historically they've been very focused on long length of stay. And unlike some ADRs, which we'll talk about where they just pull a month or something, they're usually pulling the entire period of time. And so the dollars really add up fast, similar to the CPI audits that we've talked about in other other episodes. Uh, they they do really add up and they can be a million dollars because, um, you know, it is if they're pulling your tail and it's your 
total tail, it, it can really be significant. I guess, um, so a million dollars, that million dollars shouldn't include room and board, right? So when we have those dual eligible people, I feel like we're always having to reteach this point with uh, these kinds of auditors. And so are, are you seeing Aaron Bryan auditors pulling people that they shouldn't be because they didn't really get Medicaid hospice because obviously room and board is not a hospice service and and uh, are, are we running into that issue? Not that we know yet. Uh, there are, as Brian mentioned, there's the mixed request where we have some Medicare patients and some Medicaid patients. So it'll be important to kind of look and see for those patients what's coming back and what they're denying. Um, but so far, no. But as as you guys have basically mentioned, we're always on the lookout for that. Yeah. And I think it's it's something worth, we always used to include it in our Medicaid audits of just making very sh clear because one of these things that they ask us to do as part of these audits is this questionnaire and they ask how much Medicaid revenue we get. And it's like, well, with or without nursing home room and board amounts, because again, the nursing home room and board amount is not our money. We just pass it through. And so I think it's always important to emphasize with them that that money shouldn't be recouped. And um, I remember it was one of the very first MIC audits, um, I think, to, to take place. And we had to battle about that because it was just not understanding the pass through and having to go back to the Social Security Act and and getting it um, uh, trying to explain all of that. I, I guess tell tell me a little bit more about what you're seeing in these questionnaires and how they differ from what we saw in the past. Or are they the same? Well, Meg, uh, we, we were uh, Aaron and I were just on the phone with that client from a while ago reminiscing about that argument on room and board and and how we beat that back and and you know Meg you and, and I and, and Aaron of course we all know that that has come up in a half a dozen other states since then at least and we've always successfully beat it back so yeah we look out for that and we know we can put it back and so yeah these requests for records on the mix of the the Medicaid side there's really two components to them there's the typical request for medical records, and then there's this provider questionnaire that they provide. Uh, and Aaron, why don't you kind of walk us through some of the observations we've had about the request for records and how that's different from what a what a medic what a UPIC might do on the Medicare side? Yeah, so a lot of times the UPIC on the Medicare side, the number and uh, kind of the length of time that they're looking at for patients can vary. For these Medicaid UPIC requests, we're seeing a decent handful of patients anywhere between 9 and 16 um, requested. But as Meg mentioned earlier, long length of stays. So up to two years for some patients. Um, for the mixed Medicare, Medicaid audit that we have right now, some of them they're only requesting two months for. So that one's a little bit different. Um, in terms of the items that they're requesting, it's similar when it comes to the patient documentation, you know, uh, your initial certification, your election, admission documents, um, and then during the dates of service, the actual visit notes, recertifications, face-to-faces, uh, things of that nature. 
not a lot of business documentation or what we call business documentation. So, um, you know, like copies of contracts or policies, anything like that. They are asking for what we have seen, which is a pretty standard request, is copies of staff credentials, um, including physician and billing personnel. Um, and by that, I mean people that are billing under the NPI, not necessarily your, your billing staff. So that's a little bit kind of the same. One thing that I've observed since UPICs were first formed, when they tried to push together the Medicare and the Medicaid side of this, uh, is that the Medicaid side of it just seems less organized and they haven't, Definitely. They, they they didn't get their act together when UPICs were first formed. And based upon our recent, recent experience, they haven't made a lot of progress now. What, what do you mean when you say disorganized? I'm putting that in, in air quotes. Is it just, you know, like the issues we said, they're auditing patients that they really have no business auditing or they're you know, asking for really irrelevant information. What do you mean by that? Yeah, and I think it's a combination of all of that. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Aaron. Let me. I'll say a few things, but then turn it over to you. And, and one is, when you look at the the list of documents they're requesting, it's usually a lengthy set of bullet points, and it's duplicative. They ask for the same thing three different times. Uh, they use slightly different language. It makes it a very confusing set of requests to keep track of. And so that's a problem. With the time frame they identify, uh, they might identify one date range in the cover letter saying we want to have information from you know January 1, 20, uh, 2017 through December 31, 2018. But then the list of patients, it might identify a different time period for each patient. And then when we get to this provider intake questionnaire that we'll talk about later, it might be a different set of dates for that. So now you got to juggle three different dates and which one is responsive and, and which one do you really have to have to go after. And then uh, in terms of the kinds of patients they're requesting, uh, we have found in one of these recent ones we're working on that they're going back quite a bit, quite, quite a length, quite a, a number of years to get that information. A rule of thumb for Medicaid audits is that there's about a five-year look-back period. Now, that might change from state to state, but that's a pretty good rule of thumb. Medicare, on the other hand, is four years. Uh, and so in this particular audit, they're going back further than five years to look at patients, which immediately raises a red flag for us, where we will need to check to see if that particular state's law creates an exception to this five-year rule of thumb. Uh, and if it doesn't, then we need to call out the auditor on that. And we've done that, you know, when they've gone outside this appropriate look-back period or reopening period before, we'll call the auditor out on that. And and in response to that, what the auditors have done is they'll they'll kind of take back that request or they'll narrow their request so they don't fall within that audit period. So, and Aaron, what else, what, what kind of uh, other information did you have? I think you pretty much covered it, Brian. I was basically just going to talk about the repetitive requested items. Um, and it just seems, you know, it's probably a template letter that they're pulling um, and filling in for whatever hospice it is that the, is the lucky recipient um, and just not deleting. They're not customizing it in any way to the actual hospice um, or hospice specific items. So I well, stole your thunder. I apologize, Aaron. <laughs> That's okay, Brian. I do think this is why working with counsel on, on these types of requests is important because I think that 
some sometimes people gloss over these things and don't see the inconsistencies because I think what whatever type of audit you're working on, right? We always say a tenant is you're not going to stop this audit in their tracks, but what you're trying to guard against is it looks like you're withholding information, so you're not being responsive. Um, or the other bad thing you could do is modify your records in some way that it looks like you're falsifying documentation. And so, so I think the things that you're pointing out go to that first thing is I want to make sure that I'm providing responsive documents. And this is why I think when we work with folks that cover letter, and I think with Medicaid, it can sometimes be more involved of we're making judgment calls about, okay, this is how I'm interpreting this request. And I, I, oftentimes think that's a better approach to go is to say, here's how I'm interpreting your request. Cause I think sometimes people just say, I'll call them. And then they just keep asking for more and more information. And now, now you have like what they verbally told you and the three different things they told you in a letter. And so I think that the way to, to guard against that is take a reasonable interpretation and then, you know, make very clear that's how you're interpreting it. And that's obviously the point of, of having counsel involved to, to help you make those calls and, you know, what is actually reasonable to do. But I want to spend some time looking, talking about this questionnaire, Aaron, because sometimes I think people, again, maybe don't read the nuance in some of these questions. Uh, and I think that this is where it's good to go through that with counsel because they want you to sign and attest to a bunch of stuff when you complete this, which, you know, we oftentimes say, you know, you don't need to sign their their certification statement. But but what are the kinds of questions that are in there and what can trip people up? Yeah, this too, I think, is obviously like a template document. We've seen provider intake questionnaires differ a little bit by state or by region, but the basic questions have to do with provider background. Uh, so, you know, your tax ID number, when was the business established, questions like that. They also, it talks um, about like the, how the business is formed. So whether it's like a corporation, uh, nonprofit, LLC, things of that nature asking about, you know, like ownership information or officer and director information. It also asks about compliance, previous compliance experience, and that includes previous state and federal audits, investigations, and reviews. So this is one that we have um, particularly talked to our clients about when they're answering this question, you know, making sure that you're responding specifically to uh, or including those items that are during the dates of service requested. Um, so it's not asking for any audit or any review you've ever had in, in the entire existence of the hospice. Um, then, as Meg mentioned earlier, well, they'll ask about Aaron, let's pause there because that question is really important and what's included mm -hmm. in that and what isn't. So people say, so I have to report every ADR I've ever received. And it's like an ADR is not an audit. And so but sometimes, again, this is why it's helpful to have the steady hand that's been through this that can, because some people either would gloss over that and say, well, but, you know, I won at the end of the day, so I, I won my Medicaid audit, so I don't need to report that. And so I think it's helpful to to sort of see the nuance of those questions, because when clients ask us those questions, I'm glad because it shows they're paying attention, but but know 
you know, what's a reasonable interpretation of an audit and a random ADR is, is not an audit. Yeah, and well, I think normally, oh, I'm not going to steal your thunder this time, Erin. Go ahead. <laughs> we probably have different comments, so I'll go first. But um, they normally ask for documentation related to any audit, investigation, or review, too. So it is important to kind of narrow that as much as you can and, um, you know, tailor what it is that you're giving them related to that audit. So if you were successful, you know, give them the successful results of that audit versus the initial request letter, things like that. Those are things that you can talk through with counsel. Yeah, and it's there are judgment calls that need to be made throughout answering that questionnaire. They want documentation about those audits. Well, is that the initial request? Is that how you responded to it? Is that the final result? Is it all of that? And we're always trying to to limit the number of documents we provide yet still satisfy the question. So kind of working through what's the right kind of document. They ask about your corporate officers. Now, does that mean, you know, all of your VPs and, and whoever were directors, or is that more of the uh, you know, look to the bylaws of your organization, president, vice president, treasurer, secretary? I think it's the latter, but that's not an intuitive response. That's because probably I'm an attorney and I deal with these mm -hmm. things all the time. So you can kind of, you need to make a lot of judgment calls. And the most important thing is that the questionnaire you provide is accurate. And that's really what we do. We use our experience to make sure the hospice is providing complete and accurate information. And they're not going to be uh, you know, accused of, of misleading or anything like that in their responses. And I think that we've been at this a long time and we've been doing this presentation you you and me brian on you know in the 10 years of defending hospices and audits like what are primary tenants um and you know it is helpful i think to know that when you make these calls about what i'm providing and how i'm responding that it's so important to be transparent on that so i i think that again the the purpose of that cover letter that we always put with with things and all the years we've been doing this i mean the cover letter really is your foundation for saying if i'm making a judgment call or i don't have exactly what you're asking for but i'm giving this that's really sort of your proof that i'm trying to be cooperative with this investigation. And I think that I've never had an auditor come back to us and say, oh, you're being unresponsive. If you know, we said, well, this is how we interpreted what you're asking for. And so I, I think that um, there's always gonna be a lack of clarity and our role is to just say, take a side, <laughs> take a position and then be transparent about how you, what you're, you're saying. And then if they want something different, then you deal with it then. Yeah, and I think you alluded to this earlier, Meg, and this is don't don't go back to the auditor and ask for clarification because they will always or I fear they will always take the most broad, the, the most broad, the broadest, whatever interpretation and say, just give me everything. And so by going back to the auditor, you're kind of walking into a situation where you're going to end up providing more and then more and then more stuff. Whereas, as you said, if you have a response where you don't seek clarification, but you just make your own reasonable interpretation, describe what that is, send it back. We've never been called on that to provide more information at that point. 
because we do take those reasonable positions. So I, I guess stay tuned on on how these shake out, but I do think that um, you know it is important because the ones you're talking about, they're all in different states. So it's not oftentimes with MIC audits, if they came to town, suddenly our phone was ringing from eight different hospices in North Carolina or something like that. This is this is going a little bit different. Um, we're not getting that. I'm auditing everyone in Wyoming, which I guess that's probably too big. Um, so, yeah, it doesn't have the indications of it being a statewide project and and affecting a number of states at the same time, like it was three years ago, at least not so far. But but a couple of final points on these on these you pick Mick. I keep calling them mix. These you pick Medicaid <laughs> audits um, is these provider intake questionnaires. A new feature of them is at the end, they suggest that there's going to be a conference call with the auditors where they want questions, they want answers, or they want to be able to, to discuss how the hospice prepares its documents and how that documentation in the medical record flows to billing. Uh, the This idea of a conference call is a new feature in Medicaid UPICs that we have not seen before. Uh, and And also, the question we get a lot that we address is extrapolation. Uh, we see extrapolation with certain contractors on the Medicare side. Uh, on the Medicaid side, not so much. But but UPICs on the Medicaid side, they are allowed to extrapolate if the state law allows them to extrapolate. And so you want to make sure you have that knowledge of state law. And and we get we get in depth on the state uh, on the law of any state. We work with a client and to to answer those kinds of questions. I think to one last point to talk about these uh, requests, something new that we noticed, and because we look at request letters all the time, we notice when there's something kind of weird or different. So far on these requests, the state Medicaid OIG has been CC'd, um, which is interesting. We're not exactly sure why that is the case. Uh, it could be, you know, a new protocol that UPICs are supposed to alert the state to what they're doing, um, or it could be that the state potentially had a role in prompting this request. Uh, we'll have to see kind of as these progress uh, if there is any actual state involvement. Well, and at the end of the day, they're going to be the ones prosecuting this audit. And so, you know, oftentimes OIG that they house, I, I know Brian, you've worked on on complaints. And so every state's a little bit different about how their legal department is organized, but it could be because of that too, like they're gonna take over prosecution mm -hmm. of this. But but it is, I think, important to remember, you know, the cycle of these audits is that this is a federal contractor. So it's not the state doing, cause states can do their own Medicaid audit. And so, you know, the circle of this draft report, it will go to the, you know, the federal oversight, but then it will go to the state for review and then to us and then when finalized, likewise. So there have been times where we have, um, you know, directly gone to the state if we felt that there was uh, concerns with the audit or I think there's oftentimes pediatric um, patients get pulled in these that, you know, really 
seem to have no business being denied and and sometimes going to the state because they're going to be left prosecuting this and having to settle this and pay back money to the federal government. Um, and so if there's something that they shouldn't have to pay back is, you know, it, so but but Brian, you, you have a lot of experience on that. Yeah. And, and this advocacy with the state can be very valuable because, as you said, Meg, these are federal auditors but once their job is done, they dump all of this on the state Medicaid officials who have to then enforce and try to collect this overpayment. And they got to deal with witnesses that the auditors picked, these, these reviewers, uh, and sometimes the states are not very happy with the job that the federal auditors have done. Uh, so it really varies from state to state, but we've in, when we've reached out to the state to try to advocate for our clients, in some instances, the state is as frustrated as we are with how these federal auditors approached the audit and they're on our side. And sometimes that has stopped these audits in their tracks once it gets turned over to the state. Other states, they kind of accept whatever the feds did, they're gonna rubber stamp it and it's kind of a, you know, predestined that whatever the auditors find, unless you're willing to go to court through an appeal process, you're gonna be stuck with. And we've been in so many different states, it's really a different approach um, in each state that that you know, we're able to talk to clients about and then try to leverage our experience in one state to make use of it in another. Uh, and one of the benefits of kind of getting the, the national picture uh, that we get with our clients being so far flung in all the different states, we kind of know what's going on across the country. Yeah, no, I think that's that's really helpful. So just in time after you've settled out all these other um, Medicaid audits, Brian, a whole new slew come because you've been to a lot of different states making the circuit, but... Yeah, maybe I'll be traveling around the country again. <laughs> you haven't been to Wyoming yet. I don't think we have a client in Wyoming. So, um, well, if anybody from Wyoming is listening, give us a call. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that might be that and Alaska, I think, are the two states we don't have any clients. In. Yeah, Aaron, Aaron, you can handle Alaska. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to go visit a client in Alaska. Yes. <laughs> Well, and, and maybe the final, final thing that I'll say with um, state Medicaid audits is, you know, every state Medicaid benefits a little bit different, even though by statute in in broad brush, they should be the same. The prior auth process, whether they have it, is going to be different. And I think being able to understand what the prior auth process is and using that to be helpful because some prior auth processes and in states involve them reviewing the medical record and actually making a determination and, and whatnot. So I think that that can be really, really helpful. Um, so, so anyway, that, that, that is interesting. What, what is um, old is new again. And um, so I hope not to see any extrapolated, uh, you pick Medicaid cases, but it, and because some states do allow extrapolation so it sounds like most of the samples are too small for them to extrapolate but and plus our sample are the number of medicaid hospice patients we have is so so few but um i want to turn uh before we leave here to all of these adrs like they're going crazy and so since we're recording this um, during COVID and uh, 
prepayment review and TPE is still suspended, but postpayment review, which is something that MACs have not historically done, even though I think they've always had the authority to do that, has now sort of come to very quickly, I, I think in the last three weeks have just sort of gone crazy here. And it's not just in certain regions of the country, it's every single MAC is is very active. And um, it, it seems that they're focused both on long length of stay and then GIP over seven days. But Aaron, why don't you say, talk to some of the, the things that we're seeing on these yeah, so as Meg mentioned, the uh, we're getting them from multiple Macs, so Palmetto, CGS, everybody is doing them. Um, and we have a lot of clients that have kind of, a lot of times clients do ADRs on their own. So we just get notice of them kind of in passing or on calls about other items. So um, we've gotten a lot lately. So we have looked at some of the request letters. Uh, they kind of look like your typical ADR request letter, as we talked about earlier, asking for those kind of standard patient documentation. Um, and again, these are post-payment, so they're, you know, after you've already gotten paid um, and, and you submit the records. So sometimes they're one patient, sometimes they're one claim. I think we've seen a little bit of variation, but not much. Um, and it just seems to be a lot. <laughs> yeah, we've seen that. Yeah, it is it's certainly a, a deluge, I guess, uh, in, in yes. recent weeks. Uh, What's another yeah. word for a lot? Deluge, a lot, flurry. Full bloom. Going back to the full theme bloom, there in yes. full bloom. Exactly. exactly. Like an algae yeah. bloom. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a, yeah. that has the negative connotation. So it's an oil yeah. spill of, <laughs> uh, of audits. <laughs> So, but, but, you know, clients, they'll, you know, they, they might get these electronically, which is the standard way that a hospice would get an ADR. Uh, we've had clients be sent a separate letter, uh, which is not the typical way that hospices get ADRs, but it's alerting them that they're doing this post-payment review on these open projects. So it's just a variety of approaches, not a lot of uniformity in that area. I guess the uniformity is that these are happening uh, much more frequently and much more intensely than they have in the past. Uh, and then they seem to be following up on these ADRs with not just the results of the ADR, but then a separate letter uh, that these MACs are now sending out. And and internally here, we've called it the uh, education invitation letter, where they are writing to say, here's the results of your audit you know, this was denied, this was paid. Uh, if you want to receive education about this, just drop us an email. Uh, and we've been uh, we've been analyzing those. Th those kinds of letters have come from the different MACs. A and a couple of, of theories we have about the letters is that uh, this is their way to try to establish a record of providing education to hospices. Because, and, and that's significant because uh, if it is determined that a hospice had education on certain issues and that education failed because they continued to get denials, it means that the kinds of consequences the hospice can face in the future will be more severe, including something like extrapolation. Uh, failure of education or failure to learn from education is one reason why uh, an auditor can uh, extrapolate. Uh, and so, 
you know, it's a little puzzling that they offer invitation even when they pay claims, when it appears that they think you're doing fine, they still want to educate you. Um, I, I tack that up to the, the max having a one-size-fits-all approach, and they just want to kick out these letters to build the record uh, more than anything else. Well, I think it's different, too, than what we've seen in the past, because this idea of education after an audit or a review is not new, um, but a lot of times it's just you get a provider education letter, and in that letter is, you know, your quote-unquote education, um, or they just reference in your results letter, you know, this audit was intended to be education regarding clinical eligibility. Um, so now that they're making it kind of like an option is is strange. Yeah, and, and so, you know, our, our approach to these uh, to these post-pay audits, much like ADRs, is, uh, you know, obviously submit the documents, appeal any denials. There's a lot of benefits to appealing denials apart from uh, making sure you get to hold on to your money. You're, you're building a record of what your position is. You're defending your physicians. Um, you're, you're trying to demonstrate that uh, whatever the reason for the denial was not a systemic problem. It does not mean that there are more overpayments out there that are yet to be discovered. And so by all means, take advantage of that appeal opportunity. And to address this new education invitation letter, you know, I, to, just to, to include in whatever appeal you're doing, a sentence or a few sentences uh, that talk about, okay, we got your education invitation letter, uh, but but because you're only inviting us to get educated, and it seems to be our choice, you know, um, you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna reach out to you because we don't think we need education. And then they're not building the record that they gave us education. Or we can try to put the ball back in their court and say, you're offering us education, but but these letters say, tell us what you want to be educated about, and we're like, you're the one who denied us. You tell us what you think we need to be educated about. Uh, you can't put it all on us, and so just bounce the ball back in their court, I am sure the Macs are going to not respond further because it's probably not within their kind of a set of, you know, whatever robot is kicking out these letters. They're not sophisticated enough to, to respond individually. But it's a way to, to quickly address that kind of a, a, an education invitation letter that comes out. And some of this is a new approach. I think 10 years ago, there was, if you were on TMR, you got education that process and typically requested, you know, if they offered it, you took it. But like on one single ADR that you're getting a denial on to say, I'm going to sit through education. I mean, it just, when you're on targeted medical review or now they call it TPE, that's very different, right? Because they're looking at a bunch of your claims and it seems like, you know, there there's, opportunity to have more conversation, but um, yeah, it's weird. Well, and obviously we spend a lot of time internally <laughs> spending more time than probably any, anyone who like came up with this letter uh, uh, spend thinking about what it means. But I guess that's the fun part of our job is, you know, coming up with, you know, 800 different ideas about how to respond to these. So, yeah, I think the max, they, they have this machine called the Deniatron 3000 or something <laughs> that just denies claims and kicks out letters and does whatever it wants. And yeah, we're trying to figure out ways to push back and, and fight the power on those. Well, and I, I think that we, 
like you said, we see these all over the country. So you try to pick up on patterns pretty quickly. And it threw a monkey wrench in things when we saw that they're getting them when they pay claims. And you're like, why do I need a, the education? Because claim, claim review is education itself. Like you don't, right? So if claims are denied from a 60 day repayment rule perspective, like claim denials or medical review is considered education. So if I got paid, the education is like, I'm doing things right. Why would I want to, unless if you want to tell me all the ways I'm <laughs> awesome, um, you know, it just, it doesn't seem, I think that's when all of our hours we spent sort of throughout the window and said that was a waste of time because maybe we're reading way more into this than we needed to. But nonetheless, it's the, the kind of work that we do of, of trying to really, when, when, micro trends are are um, starting trying to to think about how do we need to change our strategy because you know one size doesn't always fit all and how we approach these things continues to evolve and and I think that appeal point you made Brian is so incredibly important because the other thing I would say you know people used to Hospices are sometimes harder on themselves and they said, well, I looked at it and our documentation really could have been better. So I'll just take my lumps. And it's like, no, right? You have a physician who believed this patient was was eligible. They wrote a narrative that connected these dots. Like, no, you should appeal that. And you may end up making a business decision, you know, before you go to ALJ if it's worth that time and energy. But I think not appealing something we have seen can be viewed as an admission and agreement with this finding. And so I just think, um, you, you know, don't be too hard on yourself. And and it is important to defend because then they could say, well, you never should have billed this to begin with. That's what you're saying by not appealing this is you never should have billed this. And that was inappropriate. And obviously, we don't want to get in that lane. That's no good. So maybe the, the closing remark on these ADRs is I think they can really add up because you know, one, um, I was just talking to someone today on, you know, the patient was on for three years, so they're going to, you know, if there's a denial on that, that's going to be a lot of money. Um, and so, so it's not like normal prepayment ADRs where it's just might be a month period of time. And because it's post-payment, you know, they're going to start recouping that money. Um, and so, so obviously that's why we, as you said, Aaron, are not typically involved in ADRs, but I think we're getting involved because they're going to start taking this money that can lead to cash flow things. What are my options? And sort of talking through the different options related to allowing recruitment or not and, and whatnot. To a way that we can get involved in these ADRs uh, sometimes is with summaries. So we don't typically recommend that for just a, a regular one-off ADR that you prepare like a patient summary because you don't actually I'm gonna know. I'm gonna no no with an ADR I, I'm gonna pull well, another view like on a we on a, do if you know what the subject is so yeah. if they're specifically telling you like we're looking at GIP patients or we're looking at patients with a stay of over like 730 days then yeah you know what they're looking at but if they're just sending you a random ADR and you don't actually know what the subject of the review is we typically do not recommend summaries. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it, you're right. I mean, it, it it depends. You have to know what it is 
and even if you got one for a three year period of time and you know it's obviously length of stay, it probably they haven't asked you to do a self audit of this record or write a summary, you know, it probably doesn't make sense to do that. But but I do think like oftentimes with ADRs and it's one month and like you said, if it's GIP over seven days, most people are doing a high level summary of what are the key points. And but but I will say and I think all of us would agree on this point because we've talked about it. I don't know that I see different results for clients who do that versus clients that don't do that, that it results in like winning more at the, out of the gates. Um, so yeah, I think it makes clients feel better. You know, in the best case, it makes them feel better uh, to have a summary out there. Um, but, you know, worst case is you review the record that way and you come to your own conclusion that, uh oh, this is how did this patient ever get through? And and then you have a problem um, because now you're independently making some determination. And that's why we're very, very cautious about summaries uh, to an auditor before the auditor has had their say in this. Uh, but, mm -hmm. but, you know, sometimes in a targeted audit, maybe that will help influence the auditor one way or the other. We have no way of knowing and and our information is we don't see any real effect of those uh, in a positive way for hospices. Yeah, and I would just say, in my finer point is I would say an ADR is not an audit. And so what we say in audits might not apply to ADRs. And But I mean, anyway, we this is, this is the fun part of what we do is arguing about nuance no one cares about. Um, <laughs> but, but so I, I do think something's cooking with these ADRs and I think they could have a bigger financial impact than some may normally getting one off ADRs is because they're looking, it appears, at very long length of stay. So, um, but anyway, happy, happy news to, sh to share with folks. Um, so thank spring you. Spring is in the air. <laughs> spring is in the air. Yeah, happy spring. Um, yeah. Well, I do think that the knowledge is power and um, staying up to speed on these things is important for folks. So thanks for being generous with your thoughts and time and sharing with, with our audience here. I know it will be appreciated. And, um, and so we're going to push this out soon so it doesn't become old news because <laughs> who knows what's going to happen tomorrow, right? So well, it's got to come out in the spring. We can't have a spring as yes. a coming out in the summer. So yeah, and thanks Meg for hosting us. This is great. All right, take care. Bye. Right. Bye. Bye. Well, that's it for today's episode of Hospice Insights, The Law and Beyond. Thank you for joining the conversation. To subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at hushblackwell.com or sign up wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, may the wind be at your back. Bye.